I'm Dr. Megan Corredo, and welcome to Real Stories, a podcast that features the narratives of trauma survivors, professionals, and community leaders. Real Stories provides a platform for guests with diverse life experiences to voice and honor their unique narratives. During today's episode, we will be speaking with Jamie Brunson. Jamie, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. I'm glad to be here. Thank you. So tell us a little about who you are. Okay. Um, I'm, I'm particularly drawn to a certain section of who I am based on what's happening around us today mm. um, in the world between the pandemic and the social unrest and peaceful protests that are going on. Mm-hmm. So I am an African-American woman who grew up in the late 60s and early 70s. Okay. Uh, and that has really shaped my perspective. Uh, mm. I grew up in a suburb. And, you know, it's funny when you say suburb, people think wealthy, people think, you know, you have life is great. And don't get me wrong, you know, my family provided a wonderful, wonderful community for us to grow up in. But Mm -hmm. uh, the community that I grew up in was segregated. Okay. And in fact, remains largely segregated today. Wow. Uh, We lived in the colored section. And unlike urban neighborhoods, you know, where there are, um, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of people of color, we were a small segregated community surrounded on all sides Mm. by uh, whites. And some of them were very um, much committed to Jim Crow. Wow. And so even as a young person, I have memories of being, you know, maybe eight years old, uh, being forced off the sidewalk Mm. by older white males. Um, I can remember playing out front of our house and a frequently cars full of white males or even you know mixed gender car loads would drive through our neighborhood and call us mm-hmm. the n-word and throw bottles and things out of their car at us even us children wow and you remember that as a little girl oh i do oh i absolutely mm. do because i didn't understand you know um the anger that was around me you know uh, I didn't understand what was going on. And mm-hmm. uh, so, you know, I, I draw back to this kind of upbringing. And um, uh, when I think about what's happening around us today, and mm-hmm. uh, so, you know, when you ask me to tell you who I am, I am very much uh, an African woman, African-American woman, seeing the world from this perspective, but mm-hmm. also... You know, as the years passed, uh, I witnessed my grandmother, the matriarch of our family, who was born in 1910 and, you know, lived through the colored only and all of that, all of that. Uh, And I watched her embrace uh, our family as we welcomed into it white people. Mm. You know, as my sister married an Italian man and her children are all half Italian and half black and they're beautiful. And, you know, my grandmother was always my role model. And so I look at the world from this perspective of 
you know, growing up in a world that was very much black and white to seeing mm. the world change from within my very own family. Wow. Uh, to now. And so I think that's what I want you to know about who I am in the context of the things I, I, I hope we get to talk about today. Thank you. Thank you. Can you tell us about what you do? Yes, yes. I am the executive director of a Philly-based organization called First Person Arts. And the bottom line is we believe that everyone has a story. And all stories are of equal value, so no one story is more powerful or important than another. Mm -hmm. And further, we believe that when you give people an embracing space to share their stories, they connect with each other and the world. Mm -hmm. uh, so our organization literally gives people a platform to share their true personal stories and we develop them into an art form. That's amazing. Uh, yeah. It, you know, um, I wake up every morning and think, wow, I am so blessed to have this job and, you know, to get to meet and know people intimately because they're sharing, just like I just shared with you, they're sharing right. deeply felt experiences and I'm connecting with them and I'm learning, mm. I'm learning about the nuances of hum humanness. And you must hear like a wide range of different narratives too. Oh my God. Oh my God. It, you know, and so it, not only am I hearing lived experiences that precipitate perceptions, I'm also learning when there isn't lived experience to precipitate okay. the perception, you know? So I'll give you an example, a quick example. I remember when we had the mortgage crisis and um, I was in the, you know, I, I, I talk to everybody. I'm known for talking to strangers. Mm -hmm. And so I'm in the health club and I'm in the whirlpool next to this lady. And we're talking about the mortgage crisis. And she looks at me and she says, every person that lost their home deserved to lose it. Wow. And I just looked at her and I said, oh, my God, you know, every single one of them. <laughs> OK. And she was furious and she just got out of the whirlpool. And so, you know, there's an example of someone with a perception and she has no idea. She she has no real context for having that perception. She just has it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then you hear about people that, you know, um, respond to something and they have a lived experience that is incredible. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So every individual, every community, every system has a story and every story includes adversity, but it also includes strength. Can you talk to us about some of the adversities that you face? I, I would. I would like to. And I'd like to use the example of the George Floyd video. Okay. Okay. Um, which is a um, which is a, a powerful example. So I just told you about my background and how mm -hmm. I look at the world, where I look at the world from. And so I am looking at this. George Floyd video. And what I'm seeing when we talk about what is what are some of the adversities that I face. As a person 
with the history that I have, I look at that George Floyd video and I see a white person in power, a white male in power with his knee on the throat of a grown black man who I am watching beg for his life and then finally call to his mother. Mm. And George Floyd, it starts out as George Floyd, but then George Floyd becomes my uncle, mm. you know, who wanted to go to college and was a star athlete and a, a great student and could not go to college and ended up as a postman. And there's nothing wrong with being a postman, but for him, he saw that as a failure. Okay. And I can remember his tears. You know, the, the things that we don't, the things that we feel like children should never have to see grown men do. Mm. Certainly not the grown men they love. That's a powerful insight. And that they're supposed to be able to idolize. You know, so for, for me to see George Floyd laying on the ground begging for his life and calling for his mama, that is something to me that no person, let alone a black person, should have to see, let alone a child. So for me, I looked, I saw George Floyd, then I saw my uncle, and then I thought about my great-great-uncle who went to World War One and came back shell-shocked because his body just could not process what he saw and what he experienced as a black soldier fighting mm -hmm. for this country. And, and so I, I, you know, when we see these things and these images, they are traumatic and mm -hmm. they call forth generational trauma. Right. And it becomes an adversity, you, you know, because they say that, you know, I, I can remember hearing that there's a pyramid because I'm not a healthcare professional. I'm, I'm just mm -hmm. me, right? I'm an artist. I'm an advocate. That, I'm just, that's, you know, um, and, and and they talk about this pyramid and they say that, you know, there's a small group of people at the top of the pyramid that suffer from behavioral health illnesses. And there is a, a far greater number of people at the bottom that never have. And then there's this group in the center that may have experienced it once in a while. Um, mm -hmm. it's all getting mixed now. It's all getting mixed now. People that may have never experienced behavioral health issues or may have only experienced it once or twice are being traumatized. Mm -hmm. When they see videos like George Floyd, when they see peaceful protesters being accosted and assaulted and hurt and violated, you know, so for me, that's a big adversity right now. That's mm -hmm. what I'm dealing with. And the way that I'm trying to deal with it, the what I'd like to arrive through this with is some kind of understanding about how I can live free of the trauma and free of the pain during these times. That's a really big goal. I know it is. And, and I, I, I really, intuitively, I feel like there's something inside of me. There's some internal change because externally, I don't feel comfortable expecting the world to change for me. Mm -hmm. 
Okay. So, so intuitively I'm saying there's got to be something I can do to find peace that passeth all understanding within me. Mm. How do I stay positive? How do I stay loving yet powerful as I navigate? And so this is the self-reflection mm. and the exploration that I'm, I'm doing right now. And, and I'm doing it by talking to other people like you, Megan. Mm. And, and just say, how can we learn to live free? Because I think it's something that's learned and maybe even accepted. Mm. And then thinking about, um, so that that's such a complex thing to uh, think about even what does freedom mean for, for us as individuals? Yeah. And then also um, thinking about the complexity of the traumas um, that you're mentioning and that many other people are mentioning how the trauma is not just one incident at one time that it impacted one person. Um, these are traumas that are intergenerational and the traumas that impact someone else in another city, in another vicinity, who we may have never even met before may also create all of these other triggers, feelings, emotions yes. inside of us. Yes. I, I remember seeing a protester from London, a, a black woman from London and she was asked why was she out in London protesting George Floyd? And she mm -hmm. said, because I understand. And I wanted to cry. It was a bittersweet moment. On one hand, I thought George Floyd's life has impacted the entire world. How powerful. But on the other hand, it was this woman in London understands. She Because she's probably experienced something that makes her come out and protest in London for something mm. that happened in America. So it was bittersweet for me. There was the positive and the negative side of it. Right. And then thinking about how, how in a way, pain connects us. Pain is yes. a part of our humanity. Yes. But then also going back to what you mentioned, one of your goals, being is to also freedom is something else that connects us as human beings too. And how do we hold space for both of those things? Right now, my, my friend, Diane, who is the head of women's way. Um, and she is clearly a woman, a white woman of privilege who is deeply conscious in my opinion, deeply conscious. Uh, uh, she and I, Diane and I have had numerous lengthy conversations about this very thing. And what, what Diane said, which I thought was really profound, is that she said she wanted to learn to live free so that she could allow others to live free. Wow. Right. Right. So this idea of learning to live free has resonates for people from all kinds of different backgrounds. Mm. And, and I think part of it, Megan, starts with this idea of the freedom to choose, right? The freedom to choose. I, I know that um, the freedom to choose who I am, despite mm -hmm. what other people might think of me. So I think about James Baldwin who said, if I am a nigger, it is because you need me to be one. And you mm. should explore that. Hmm. And so it's like, okay, so the first thing is me choosing who I will be, regardless of what anyone else might call me. Who do I choose to be? 
Mm. You know, and, and I think we take that for granted, right? I think we take it for granted. But you see it everywhere when people call each other, not only people that aren't African-American call other African-Americans that name, but when we call ourselves that within our own communities, you know, mm -hmm. what does that mean? What, what does that word mean to you? Because it means different things to different people. But how mm -hmm. do we choose who we want to be? And I think that's right. something positive that can come out of this adversity. And choose who I want to be and then be that. Mm -hmm. Right. So, like, I kind of like this idea of being a um, gifted, passionate uh, black woman, black goddess, black princess. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't say goddess. I wouldn't say that. But, you know, um, the, the child of God. I love that. You know, mm -hmm. and passionate and powerful. And so if I embrace that, right, then... That informs everything. Right. But then on the on the other end, if you embrace um, narratives of pain, negative self-worth, every weakness that you can think about, um, that also informs the way that you interact with other people and how you view yourself. Absolutely. Like, you know, on, on either it's, end. It, absolutely. It's a wash. It's a wash over you. It's how you walk in a room. It's how you dress. It's how you wear your hair. It's how you speak to other people. It's how you mm. let other people impact you, you know? And so, you know, I think that's kind of exciting to say, who do I want to be? And I really do have that choice. That choice really isn't about somebody else. Right. But I know for myself in my life, I let it be about other people for a long time. Mm-hmm. For, and, and at one point in my life, I found myself utterly and completely lost because I didn't know who I was. Wow. Was that a long time ago? Was that recent? No, that was in the 2000s. And I can tell you, um, I used to, I, I was blessed to be the first and youngest female managing director for the largest African-American theater. And wow. I was in my 30s. Oh, I was blessed. I was blessed. amazing, phenomenal people. And but whenever I would introduce myself, I would always say, I'm Jamie Brunson, managing director of Freedom Theater. So my name was was inextricably connected to my job. Okay. And then, you know, my grandmother was a powerful person in our community where I grew up. She was one of the, you know, elders and our family were were part of the founders of the church. So when I was at home, I was always uh, Ernestine Logan's granddaughter. Okay. So, so your identity was connected to exactly, who your grandmother was. Exactly. To her and to my job. And then in the early 2000s, I lost both. Wow. I chose to leave my job because of an illness. And my grandmother passed away. And I found myself utterly and completely lost. And, you know, they say don't make big, big decisions when you're grieving. Mm -hmm. I made a decision to leave Philadelphia, to leave my hometown and go somewhere else and start where I didn't know anybody. And I thought that that was what I wanted to do. And it made things worse. Oh, wow. So I was utterly, completely lost in terms of my own identity 
in a place that I didn't know and didn't know me. You had multiple losses all at the same time. All at the same time. Losses that were like, and also these these places in this person that was a part of like the core of your identity, the core of who you were. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I was blessed in that most of the rooms I went into for work or for home, people knew me and they associated mm-hmm. me with something positive. And when I left, when I lost it all and left, it was like being in a desert alone. Wow. And, and God brought me through it. I mean, we, I, got, I got through it and I found, I found in that desert through the experiences I encountered, I, I learned about who I was and who I wasn't hmm. in terms of my character. You know, and you had to learn that in the desert. Exactly. Exactly. And, and then I started to build from there. I started to build from there. You know, once I realized who I wasn't, okay, mm-hmm. who I was not, when I was faced with these situations out in the desert, uh, am I the person that responds this way or am I the person that responds this way? I learned who I wasn't. Mm-hmm. And then I started to build piece by piece. And I'm still building now. So what you're mentioning, Jamie, is making me think about, um, I just, I just did a webinar on creativity and destruction wow. um, and this idea that we have to have the opposite, like opposites have to um, exist in our lives. And one of the main opposites that we face is creativity and destruction and wow. how if we really want to be able to build something, something else has to be destroyed. If we want to paint, we have to destroy the paper or even the, the pigments in order to wow. create the paint. To make a mosaic, you have to break glass. Um, to write, you also have to edit and and rip what you wrote to shreds with the red pen to build it back up again. And what you're mentioning, almost like it sounds like you almost had to let go of the identity that was to rebuild a new identity and to come to a deeper understanding of yourself. And 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 it's true, and it's a step process. So if you can think about, you know, when you go to the beach, you step into the water, you're wading into the water, and as you walk further in, you're more submerged, you get in deeper. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm at a point now after 18 years of rebuild, I'm still rebuilding. I'm still discovering things. I'm in a whole new phase now uh, around reconnecting to beauty and to the great feminine and the feminine that is in me. Because, you know, when I was out in the desert, I had to let a lot of that stuff go. I had to mm. let the feminine go in order to, you know, in order to rebuild. I had to, I had to set that aside. Uh, and, and so now after 18 years, I'm, I'm, I'm in the water, I'm knee deep in the water and I'm about to go in deeper mm-hmm. to rebuild that part of my life. Mm. And also thinking about how this is an ongoing process. Like sometimes we think, that there'll be this definitive moment in our lives where we feel like we've arrived. Um, but I love the way that you're describing it. It's like, okay, I got a little deeper. Now I'm still going to be going deeper, but it's not as, you know, I have made some movement. However, I've, I haven't moved the entire way that I need to move. Right. Well, I, I, I want to first say to you that this is the most exciting time in my life. 
My, yeah. my latter days are greater than my former. I am experiencing life and living at a cellular level for once for me. Not okay. somebody's granddaughter or somebody's, uh, you know, uh, leader. For me, I'm beginning. And First Person Arts allows me to do that because I'm in an environment that's all about listening and hearing and self-reflection and, and, and community and connection. It, you know, there, there is no drama greater than real life. You know, when we think yeah. about the <laughs> you can say that again. <laughs> okay. Okay. But, but so, so let's talk about perfection. Okay. Mm -hmm. Cause I've come, I've had an epiphany about perfection. Okay? okay. I think perfection is a verb. I think it is a journey and not a destination. Okay. I think perfection is more about course correction. I think that for me to be perfect means that I live every day, I make a mistake, I stop, I acknowledge it, I recognize it, and I make the correction. And then I move on to the next mistake. And I think that's what being perfect is about. It's about the correction. It's hmm. about saying, okay, I acknowledge that I made a mistake here. And okay, God, I made this mistake. Help me mm -hmm. to course correct, to forgive myself, to acknowledge that I'm human, I made a mistake, and then course correct and keep going without looking back. Right. And I, Jamie, I feel like I need to write some notes about <laughs> Well, baby, <laughs> we got it recorded. <laughs> we got yes, it recorded. we do. You know? <laughs> I'm going to have to re-listen and re-listen, you know, not as the podcast host, but about Megan, the person, um, and really like absorb a lot of the things that you're saying because they're really on point. Well, it, you know, it, like I said, this is an exciting time in life for me. You know, I'm 55 now, you know, so, and, and, you know, the worst, like you said, the destruction that happened in my life, you know, 20 years ago, you know is finally opening up into something amazing. Mm, but it took a while, it sounds like. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and it was a process. <laughs> and it still is. You remember perfection. Every day I make mistakes and I have to deal with myself because I've spent so long beating myself up about things that it's really, for me, a, a real job to say, stop. Mm -hmm. You made a mistake. Let it right. go because you're spending too much energy Beating yourself up when you've got to stay focused on the prize ahead. Right, right. So let's switch gears for a moment. Um, can you share some positive moments or turning points in your story in addition to what you already mentioned, if there's anything else? Okay. So as a result of the George Floyd piece, I've been having conversations with these super women mm. about learning about their histories and conversations about learning to live free. And so I, I'll mention to you what, what Diane said to me about learning to live free so that we can let others live free. Okay. Um, I can say that uh, some positive things are for me as a person, you know, I always reach out for more information so that I can understand what's happening around me. And I've encountered some, amazing books 
that are out right now that help me to really understand the world and how it's changed in a way that I never had before. Uh, okay. What but, are the books? Okay. So there is an incredible book called How to Be an Anti-Racist. Okay. By Ibram X. I think it's Fendi. Let me, let me, I'll tell you. And it is amazing. And what he says is, uh, yeah, Ibram X. Kendi. And I'm paraphrasing and I'm not fully through the book yet. So forgive me if I get anything wrong. But basically what I'm getting from the book is that the paradigm is not racist or not racist. The, or the dichotomy is not racist or not racist. It's racist or anti-racist. And, mm. and it goes along with my theory of perfection. So it's about, for me, it's about racism is something that is happening to all of us, every one of right. us. It's like right. a disease. It's like the pandemic. Okay. So if you think about it right now in, in the world, we're experiencing a physical pandemic and a spiritual pandemic, which is racism. Okay. And so what he's saying is that, or what I think he's saying is that we can choose in a moment to have a racist response or an anti-racist response. Mm. And I, I really love that because it's like, and he's talking about how racism, you know, is rooted in power and policies. Right. Rather than any true reality. You know, did you know that uh, President Clinton, uh, during his uh, term in office, he released, uh, he celebrated the release of scientific evidence that said 99.1% of humans are alike. Mm, I didn't know that. Exactly, because there was no press about it. Race is a mirage. The differences between people, a mirage. 99.1% of us are the same. So anyway, anyway. Uh, so learning this stuff is exciting. And it was all precipitated by what happened to George Floyd. All precipitated by the fact that I'm in isolation and you know, there's nothing on TV to watch. So, oh, I'll read a book. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. So now all of a sudden, I got five books I'm reading. There's a book wow. <laughs> called The Condemnation of uh, I think The Condemnation of Blacks, where he talks about how uh, after emancipation, uh, a lot of blacks, and, and during the Jim Crow law, a lot of blacks were arrested for simply trying to exercise their newfound freedom. Uh, they talk about a, a young man that was stoned to death because they said he swam in the wrong side of the lake. So, wow. So uh, African-American people were put in prison en masse. And then someone got the idea to collect the data. And because blacks were disproportionately in prison, they criminalized black people. They said, oh, these, these black people should never have been emancipated because they're all criminals. Well, mm. I'm not saying that 100% of them were, were wrongly in prison, but many of them were in jail simply because they tried to exercise their freedom. And this book highlights this experience. Exactly. And this is a Harvard-educated historian that wrote this book. So um, as, we, as we finish our conversation, is there anything else that you want to share with our audience? I want to share with our audience that I find you to be an incredible woman. Aww. I find the work that you do at Bryn Mawr, 
and through your your sight, through stories, um, to be amazing, fruitful work. This conversation with you, I consider you a superwoman. Thank and you. I've learned from listening to you, and uh, I just. You know, you yourself are a space for empowerment and understanding and growth. And I really appreciate that and want to encourage you to just keep doing what you're doing. Keep growing. Keep getting, expand your territory because you're creating safe space. Thank you so much, Jamie. And I'm not, I'm, I'm not very good at accepting compliments. But I am allowing uh, your words to um, <laughs> to absorb. And I really appreciate your words of encouragement. It really means a lot. Thank you for listening to Real Stories. The resources referenced by today's guest speaker will be included in the episode description. For more information about me, Dr. Megan Corredo, and my work with the story's trauma narrative intervention, please visit my website, www.storiesguide.com. Also, feel free to follow my story social media pages on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Remember that for every story of trauma and adversity, there's always a story of strength and resilience.